Hey guys and girls, welcome back to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. And as always, I'm your host, Roman Segal. And in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Paul Dickinson, who is founder and CSO at Seda Pharmaceutical Development Services. Paul's guy who I originally met at AAPS about six months ago, I kind of stumbled across their booth at the event in Boston and was intrigued to see this relatively small CRO, CDO business on the other side of the pond. But there I had a conversation with him and the team and became fascinated with this company's growth. And six months on, uh, we managed to get uh, Paul on the podcast and bring that interview to your ears today. Um, Paul has an incredible background. He uh, in has been helped many, many senior scientific positions and leadership roles in academia and large pharma. Uh, these roles are focused on applying the best science in projects to ensure optimal product performance patients, thus bringing pharma in clinical disciplines. He founded Seda Pharma, a company focusing on delivering pharmaceutical development, CMC, and clinical pharmacology services to the pharma industry. Prior to that, Paul led AstraZeneca's clinical pharmacology program to NDA MAA for AZD9291, which was the highest priority project in the AZ development portfolio and has been awarded breakthrough therapy by the FDA. As a result of both his internal and external scientific leadership, he's been awarded numerous science and innovation awards by AstraZeneca. Paul has published over 30 research papers, five patents, book chapters, and presented numerous lectures and conference abstracts. No shock to hear that I was really, really uh, looking forward to interviewing Paul today. And one of the things that you'll hear is just his time as AstraZeneca and some of the success factors in bringing uh, to that that product to market in what was one of AstraZeneca's fastest development programs. So from start of clinical trials to approval in just over two and a half years, in the lung cancer space and bear in mind that was uh, five six years before the COVID vaccines came on stage really really incredible stuff and um, paul did some amazing work within the astrazeneca team and he talks about how he worked with cro's and cmo's and that led to the identification alongside a couple of colleagues uh, of a poorly served niche between clinical development performance and rapid early phase manufacturing clinical performance in fact is a phrase he uses several times today so here out uh, or listen out for that as well. As you can imagine, we get into the the details of why he left AstraZeneca seven, eight years ago and what led to bringing that collective experience to a wider audience. And, you know, and just kind of proving he had what it took alongside his colleagues to make uh, the jump of creating his own business, which he did with Seda. Uh, and then what follows is uh, an overview of their development of their service offering over the last seven years and the kind of the roller coaster as Paul talks about the starting and growing of his business listen out specifically for how he talks about how the scientific mindset the guys have there has really helped them in terms of looking at the way they run business as running little experiments really really fascinating uh, stuff Uh, beyond that uh, we also cover some interesting trends around uh, kind of integrated services offering and what the kind of world will look like 
in a few years' time in uh, the clinical pharmacology space. Um, as always, thank you so much for, for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoy today's episode and interview with Paul. Thanks to my team for pulling together the podcast. Uh, I ask you, as always, just to give our podcast a share with a colleague and maybe rate it on the App Store. Um, if you're planning to be at DCAT in a few months or next month, depending on when this airs, uh, it'd be great to see you. If not, I'll also be at bio if you are attending. If there's any guests that you want us to have on the podcast, please let us know. And beyond that, enjoy today's episode. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Hi, Ramon. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure having you. It seems uh, it seems like a long time ago that we uh, met each other at an event. I'm trying to remember which event it was. It might have been AAPS. Yeah, it was AAPS in Boston the last year. That was a nice event to be at. That's right. It was nice to bump into a, a fellow, uh, I suppose, a British company that I'd not come across before. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to finally have you on the podcast and, and tell your story. And um, you've got quite an interesting background, Paul. So let's start at, I suppose, the start in terms of your career. Uh, talk our listener through your journey, uh, your career journey through uh, both academic and your time at AstraZeneca and ultimately kind of where you are today at Sada Pharmaceutical Development Services. Yep, will do. So I started off first degree as a pharmacist, but I was really interested in sort of pharmacokinetics and drug delivery in the, in those early days as a pharmacist. I guess at that time most people went into a vocational career. Um, then did a PhD in sort of drug delivery to the lungs and in sort of drug metabolism in the lungs. So this combination of pharmacokinetics and uh, formulation that's been like a, a common theme throughout my career. Then. Uh, Somehow I managed to apply for a postdoc. Um, well, actually, started off uh, postdocing to get learn something about cell culture work, which is probably the first time I'd ever done anything sort of technique based. I was always really interested in sort of higher science at that point. Uh, and during that time, during that postdoc, I, I ended up applying for a PhD. So I'm not sure how I did that. So sort I of fell into it, just probably part of my career, just jumping into things. Uh, that was successful, and that sort of then tied me into an academic career for a while. So I was sort of an academic for about six years. Really in sort of pulmonary drug delivery and pulmonary understanding pulmonary biopharmaceutics. Um, that was going quite successfully, but I'm really an applied scientist. And um, after about sort of, about sort of five or six years, decided I probably needed to move into a more industrial setting. So I ended up moving to AstraZeneca, initially into pharmaceutical development and really leading a, a biopharmaceutics group in, um, in Macclesfield at the uh, sort of R&D headquarters at that time in, in Audley Park. Mm. And that was really trying to understand the tests that would inform on product product performance in the in the patient. So, how, what tests should we do on products to tell us about clinical performance? And then as we move forward, what tests would we do to ensure clinical performance? As we went through, from a design stage into getting towards, you know, the, the the later stage of manufacture. You know, how do we still ensure that we've got clinical performance? Uh, gradually became more more. more uh, senior in AstraZeneca, ended up in a global sort of science to science leadership role, looking after the, uh, in the sort of matrix organization, looking after the early early development part of uh, the science group in, in pharmaceutical development, so having the skill sets uh, to, to take drugs out of discovery and into man. But also, I'd been sort of reasonably successful on supporting late-stage projects. I worked on a number of late-stage projects that, that went all the way to registration. And at that point, I was working on a um, for around the sort of mid two thousands, was part of the uh, sort of group that was uh, 
working with the FDA on the quality by design project. And uh, we had a, their, a product that became the Cap Caprel, so that we took through that process. So I had a lot of regulatory interactions and really through that sort of built a reputation around clinically relevant specifications. And, and so I probably led a lot of the thinking in that area alongside some of my colleagues in AstraZeneca. After about 10 years, I felt I'd sort of grown out of that role a little bit and we're looking for new challenges. So I moved into clinical learning AstraZeneca as a clinical pharmacology, effectively a clinical pharmacology director. I'm really then understanding pharmacokinetics in patients, how do you control risk to patients in, in early clinical trials, and then how do you provide the sort of data set uh, to justify dose and safe usage in, in, in subpopulations when you come to sort of a marketing application submission. Uh, really lucky to work on a compound uh, ozomertinib. actually picked that up after second dose in, in humans and then took all that all the way to uh, the conditional registration in non-small cell lung, lung cancer. Exciting project to work on in, in my last few days at AstraZeneca before I then decided that I needed to uh, take another change in my career and sort of form a uh, really based on that career progression and working with my co-founder Marcel Dematas we so that we've done a lot in AstraZeneca, the two of us, we'd learned a lot. We'd seen, we believed that we could use this combination of understanding clinical performance and understanding how you manufacture products to, to help more, a greater number of projects in the outside world. So we felt there was a poorly served niche in the sense that you either had clinical CROs that were really interested in understanding clinicals, clinical PK and so on, or you had manufacturing organizations that were really interested in manufacturing drugs. And there wasn't really anyone sat in the middle of those two that said, how do we design a drug product so it gives you the right performance in, in man? And that could be in the early phases, which have a clinical development where you have different drivers to late, later stages of clinical development. And then how do you also then align that with the ability to manufacture it? That's what we thought was a, an unmet need in the outside world. And we thought we could form an organization with those two skill sets to uh, allow us to uh, see if that was an unmet need. We really sort of followed a lean startup model where we started off small, just as effectively we would, you know, single man consultants trying to see if we could uh, use our skill sets in that that area to bring value to mainly to small biotechs at that time. Yeah, we gradually grew, and we showed that actually with that that just that intellectual knowledge was valuable to clients. As we've gone through that, we've we've moved through a uh, built 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 Seda, and then. After, after a few years, brought in Paul Stott as our CEO and he, to take us into a growth phase. We've expended our offering around the consultancy, uh, around actually design of formulations and scale of formulations, manufacturing of scale formulations through lab-based work. And also we're big fans of uh, modeling to help make sort of better decisions, objective decision-making through modeling. So we're quite a big modeling group as well, knowing within Seda. If we just pause there for a minute, because I'm going to come back to your startup story and that time you spent in AstraZeneca, Paul, I mean, in particular, I noted in my research, uh, as you mentioned there, you were involved in uh, that kind of oral product for, for lung cancer within the oncology division in, uh, of AstraZeneca, which looking at some of the material, it was it was deemed to be one of the fastest programs from start of clinical trials to approval in just a couple of years. Um, what what was that like? I mean, it's interesting we're looking back. I think it was from 2015. I just didn't even know that work had been done so quickly in the prior to COVID uh, that you, you know, it, it really stood out. I mean, like, wow, this, that, that 
two and a half years is not a long. <laughs> it's not. It's not your typical development time back in you know seven eight years ago. So, what was it about? I suppose, and the phrase you've used a few times, which I find quite interesting, it's not one that I've come across as clinical performance. So, talk us through that time of being in what starts like you know it sounds like an incredible intensive project to get that kind of medication to market for unmet patient needs so so quickly and i suppose within the constructs of a, a very big pharma company yes yeah i mean you, you say at the time of pretty much a unique development and i think there was a there's a lot of success factors there so i think there was actually when i first worked on on osimertinib i was leading that skill group in, in early development farm dev one and we we did some risk assessments around that, recognizing that probably, so there was, I think there was a recognition that the, the target was likely to be a strong target and there was a high probability of success in the clinic. So, so that's, I think, an important thing that allowed a big farmer to commit resor- more resources than maybe they would normally have committed. It's not an enormous amount of resources they were committing, but say, for instance, we took forward assault, whereas maybe we wouldn't have taken forward assault as we came out of discovery. So that's just in the clinical setting. And that salt then made the formulation story much easier so we could develop formulations more easily you know, with good with good clinical performance so that sort of de-risks that bit that bit a little bit started off with a capsule and then, then moved to a tablet and the, the bridging between the capsule and the tablet was relatively straightforward based on the, the properties of compound and taking the salt forward there was a really good translational science bit as well so understanding you know where we where we needed to be exposure-wise and exposure-wise and how we uh, you know so we knew Basically, well, we believed that we understood the the exposure response preclinically, and then if we got those exposures clinically, we'd be, have more confidence to move quickly. Uh, and then the clinical organisation, pretty actually, I think probably for the size of the development, probably a pretty small clinical organisation. Um, but then again, tied into this objective decision making, you know, some really good clinical leaders that. Uh, you know, we moved through very quickly. Obviously, we've seen responses from the first dose. So as soon as we saw, I, I picked up at the second dose. Uh, so there was uh, one clinical pharmacology officer, clean, P, clean PK person there, uh, leading it. As soon as it became responses after the first dose, I then came in to look over one side of the clinical pharmacology, the other person committed to that. So then we had, so throughout the organization, focused resources, but everyone working together to ensure success, had a really clear, rationale about how we we're going to pick dose and where we we're going to go with dose part of that was driven through the peak the clinical peak here and the pre-clinical peak and pd understanding so that collaboration across discovery and development also then i think a really good insight with the physicians really talking to the, the uh, principal investigators and the investigators and really understanding what the tolerability profile was but we could get the right balance of exposure and clinical tolerability and knowing that we'd have activity so we could be really clear about what dose we were taking forward and really commit to that dose and move forward and then looking at the, the sort of commercialization aspect having a, a product then moving from the early clinical product to a product that could be uh, commercialized and then launched you know really committing to that and having that clarity about what is the right clinical quality of that product so how do we do the dissolution testing what's really important to drive exposure in the in the clinic so all those things came together and you know on the back of something you know quite amazing clinical clinical response data and, and actually compared to the sort of first generation the tkl is probably a, a nicer advert adverse event profile at least in terms of things like rash so uh which which was a big problem with the earlier generation egfr tkl so yeah 
a very nice story, very exciting to be involved with, a very intense period. Intense period when also was thinking about setting up a company in the background, so <laughs> also, also actually we did some work on another NDA in, in, in parallel as well, so for me it was a particularly intense and exciting period, didn't didn't get much sleep, but really satisfying, obviously really exciting to see the go all the way and, and get approval. It's interesting you just mentioned that as well, and and if you look at your history, obviously you've got a very strong background in that early phase, the development phase. And you mentioned there, obviously, going from clinic to commercial. You know, not everyone gets that opportunity, both, you know, people that work in big pharma companies, but also people work on the vendor side that they work on products that never ever see it to, to market. So talk us through what was that like, I suppose, both from a, a team dynamic perspective, to, well, I suppose to, to the dynamic, but also... What did you learn from, I suppose, scaling up a project from clinical to commercial? Because on paper, it's one of those things that seems pretty straightforward. I imagine the reality is quite different. So if you kind of see, understand some of the challenges and failures that you guys had to to, to battle with as, as you kind of took that from the clinic to, to patients and on a commercial scale. That was a very fast development. I've, obviously, I've worked on other projects that have gone all the way to market, but have been slower developments. I think Probably the, the big difference between early development and uh, that sort of late stage getting ready for Indian commercial commercial launch is the timeline, the, the quality of the data, the, the sort of um, how, how best to describe the quality of the data. Quite hard going. It's, it's intense. There's, you know, every, you need to be sure that you know where all your data is. All the data is very well organized and then you need to be able to Synthesize all that data into a story that is uh, accessible to people, so they can, from a clinical point of view, they can understand the risk benefit story and, and why that's set. And that has to be, you know, there's there's an enormous amount of data that goes into that. Even even for a sort of conditional registration, there's probably, well, I guess there was a couple of hundred patients for for uh, Tigressor, and so there's all that. Then there's a more enormous CMC package with these, all these sort of validation batches or establishment batches, all these stability data all your qualification of impurities and all that sort of stuff. So it's a really enormous data set that you have to have a lot of discipline to work through. Uh, but also then you need to tell the story about the risk benefit and how you're controlling the quality and how you can manufacture the product reliably going forward because there's not much point approving a drug because the clinical risk benefits there and if you can't then manufacture it in a way that's representative of the, the material that you use to support the risk benefits. All those things come together in in what is quite a large and can be overwhelming challenge. And actually, I think that's one of the strengths of the people I've worked with that are able to look at this absolutely enormous database, get the head around it, get, figure out what it meant, and then distill it down into a story that's accessible to people without, misle without misleading anybody, representing it truthfully and honestly. Yeah, it's interesting. Very, very fascinating to hear. Um, kind of the behind the scenes uh, of that and that before we get to to Sarah and the start of story you talked about I suppose you could see a niche or an unmet need in the market which ultimately led to to founding Sarah presumably you worked with CROs and CMOs through those projects um, either directly or indirectly whilst you're at AstraZeneca what was your what was your observations and what was your assessment of kind of third-party vendors when you were on that side of the fence, so to speak? They're good at their, their niche bit. So they're, good, they're either good at manufacturing or they're good at doing clinical data. 
I think sometimes they don't, and, and that could be a problem for Seda, but we try not to get around it. We try to get around that problem is, as a, as a CRO, it's very difficult to understand the full priori priorities of a company. So you can work in you, what you know about that project, and, and that could be someone's asked you for some data and you can provide that data without any context, or, or you may know more than that. We're generally working in skill silos rather than working across a project. And so, you know, some of the work we do is, is probably sitting between two different skill silos, the, the clinical one and the pharmaceutical development one. So overall, I think, you know, CROs do what they do, what they say they do on the label, and, and, and it's whether that is enough for you as a client or whether you actually still need somebody that brings the project oversight, the, the project context, which is, you know, critically important when you're trying to develop a medicine. That's interesting. And that leads us nicely on to, obviously, the kind of startup story. And you, you said something earlier on and kind of flippantly, like, you, you know, jumping into things is just something you do. <laughs> so when you and your business partner decided to start the business. Talk us through that decision because you know you had a huge amount of success at AstraZeneca and I know it in in some of the backstory, you know, you would won awards and you know at, at AstraZeneca and being recognized for your for your amazing work within the organization. So lots of people in your position tend to stay with big pharma companies for their entire career. Which is obviously is is a well trodden path and a very respected path for many people, but there's obviously something inside you that decided actually you could do things yourself and and, and start something new. So, what was it like um, both leaving AstraZeneca and then deciding to do your own thing? Interesting to know how the family chat went with your partner or at that time because I imagine it's quite a big. It's quite, I mean certainly I I know the entrepreneurial side more so than I know the big company side, but it is very different and we'll go on to talk about that but i'd love you to take us back through that decision process yeah so maybe i'll talk a little bit about what some of the drivers for leaving for was before then i talk about how we made that decision as a family uh so obviously i mean i guess big farmer had gone through you know through all that period was going through a number of contractions and you know certainly astrazeneca was shutting down big big r d sites with a reasonable uh, re with reasonable frequency so always in the back of the mind it might be that this isn't the job for life. Uh, so a number of us have been thinking about, you know, if, if we were in the position where our site shut down, what would we do? We were quite excited about, you know, myself, Marcel and Paul, the, the, the other board director and other owner of SEDA, we, uh, you know, we were success very successful in AstraZeneca, had uh, really good training and really good experiences. So we have no complaints there. There is a little bit, but all of us were relatively successful at a, a young age in our in the early part of our career in AstraZeneca. And I think in a big pharma, once you are successful, you tend to get put on the highest priority projects. You have a lot of resource to do, that you can use to your, for your purposes. So it's almost a self-fulfilling story then. You, once you've been good early on, then you get this, get the best projects, get the best resource. And then you can sort of convince yourself that this is all the greatest in the world. Uh, so there's part of it, well, actually, you know, are we the greatest in the world, or is it just that we've got this massive company behind us and we need to go out there? So that there's something about actually probably trying to prove to ourselves whether we could do it or not. There was a little bit about well, actually, I would like to be my, my own boss, and you, I've said that you know, working for us was was great, and we had a great training. But there's also something about well, you know, maybe I want to work for myself more and, I, and not have to answer to anybody, uh, which was common to all all the, all the, the founders and the owners. Uh, and the last bit was you know working in one company, working on you know. 
you know, not one project, but you know, not not tens of projects. If we formed a company, we might be able to bring our skills out to a lot more people and and, and potentially take a lot more products to market. Uh, so all those things were in in the mix when we were thinking about starting a company. Um, then the, we sort of had a little bit of a false dawn where we we were going to jump and then we didn't jump and we decided we're actually just. Uh, work for a bit longer serve a bit more money just to have some some sort of uh, financial resource behind us before you know financial resource behind us um then as was it you know for, for me astrazeneca then uh, would shut down the orderly park on d site so i had an option to make did i go back to farm dev back into a senior science leadership role of pharmaceutical development did i slay, stay with uh you know stay with uh AstraZeneca moved to Cambridge. Those were two options on the table for me. Or I could take take some redundancy leave. So uh, that made it a little bit easier for me because I had the redundancy money. So at least I had an additional saving cash to think about the company. Uh, my, my partner, uh, Marcel, he, he he just resigned, so he didn't have that uh, that uh, sort of emotional safety net of a, of a redundancy package, financial safety net. Uh, so that's where we got to. I think the discussion with the family was, uh, you know, we obviously understanding that your partner is on board is really important. So we, the four of us, Marcel and his wife and my wife, we sat down, said, are we going for this? And we all said, yep, we are. And I think it was really around buying into that vision of, can we prove to ourselves that we're as good as we think we are? And also, you know, can we bring that value to, to an outside world and do something exciting? So, um, yeah, it didn't really seem that big a risk, really. I, I, the first day when I when I, when I realised we had to bring in some um, money, my, my family's quite a bit older than Marcel's family. So when we the first day when we sat down in the in the office, just the two of us, it was like, right, we need to get some money because uh, Marcel's got quite a young family. That that was probably the first time. Like, ooh, this is quite interesting. Uh, but then you know we got a couple of big contracts quite early on, and then it was plain sailing after that. Well, a lot of working long hours, but fine. Apart from that, you're listening to Molecule to Market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Seven, probably seven or eight years ago now since you started the business. Yeah. Talk us through the growth and success of the business. You mentioned, obviously, you started from a, from a consulting back, background, which is quite common. Particularly, I see in UK... CDMOs that start from a consulting base and may yeah. expand because once you start manufacturing, that requires greater capital investment. But it would be great to give our listener, I suppose, a bit of a, a bit of a story about what's happening that seven years in, and you know, within that as well. What does Seda actually do? Because you know, it would be great for our listener that has not heard of you to to wax lyrical about what you guys do and where in particular. And I'm personally interested in knowing whether. That niche that you originally went for, that kind of, um, that kind of mix of manufacturing expertise and clinical performance, like, is that what you have become, or has it evolved and pivoted into something different? So, what we thought was that differentiating factor has been the differentiating factor. So, the the majority of the business now st- still does that, and then we've added things around the outside that maybe have moved us more towards a pure pharmaceutical development organisation or a pure clinical pharmacology organisation. But still, the, the very core of the business is around that design of product to give you clinical performance and also then to give you manufacturability to allow you to move rapidly through development uh, and understanding how you're going to move. Particularly, a lot of our clients are in oncology, so likelihood that you can do a sort of registration study in phase two for a conditional registration. How, how do you 
not slow things down by having the wrong formulation is a really key key aspect for us and helps you how do you maximize the chances of success in an early clinical development that has been a consistent we were we proved ourselves starting with this consultancy route i say following this sort of lean startup so what's the minimum economic spend you can give to prove the concept so that was through consulting really going out there and talking to people about finding some clients you know, potential clients who were coming out of discovery and are wanting to navigate that pathway through first thinking about the the formulation what's the formulation i need for first time in man so what's the proper season with drug substance what does that mean for how it will be absorbed in the clinic and what does that mean for the formulation and then once we've identified the formulation that's going to give them the right clinical performance how do we then manufacture that formulation so it came a little bit more from the pharmaceutical development side but then alongside that maybe a little bit later in the development timeline is thinking about well, it's probably even alongside it, actually thinking, what is the dose? Because the dose is critical in understanding what the formulation is. And that build, builds in the PK part. And then once you start to move into the clinic, what restrictions do we need to have on, on patients so they can take the drug safely? You know, what sort of drug-drug interactions are going to have? Understanding the, the drug substance and the drug product from a drug-drug interaction perspective. And then helping the client understand or helping our clients understand what does success look like in the clinic in terms of PK performance? As a merchant, where you see clear responses very early on as i said that was a well sort of predicated drug target a lot of people are on first in you know first time in class first in class drug targets and understanding what that's going to do in the clinic and that development pathway is, is not quite as straightforward and also emerging so helping with that and helping them to give really clear decision making i think trying to take out any ambiguity you can out of any clinical data you're generating and take that forward uh, as part of that i'm trying to reduce ambiguity we, we then quite quickly start to employ people some more consultants to help with that journey so that's really just intellectually support you know how do i move through development from those two aspects then started to build up some modeling and the modeling initially was really around understanding product performance and, and what's my absorption risks and how does that what does that mean for, for the formulation and now we've moved into sort of you know, what we call proper clinical modeling so non-compartmental analysis probably not modeling is a bit too strong there starting to move into population pk modeling which is all around then understanding drug exposure understanding drug exposure in different populations and then justifying that versus having the the optimal and this of efficacy and adverse event profile so risk benefit profile and um, we do a lot of uh, translational pkpd modeling which is really around trying to understand if I've got this type of PKA in my preclinical species and it has this beneficial impact on whatever disease model I'm looking at, so if it's oncology on tumor shrinkage in a preclinical species, uh, what does that mean for what the PKA profile should look in humans? So maybe I've got a very rapid clearance in, in rats, I might have a much longer half-life in humans. How do, I, how do I allow for those differences in PKA? Then what does that mean for dose? And particularly for us as well, what does that mean for release profile? What sort of release profile do we need to get an optimal PKA profile? And then after that, we found actually we were struggling with some clients in the early days. Get really rapid turnaround of some of the profiling we wanted to help us with understanding what the formulation should be. So then we uh, we, we set up a, a small lab offering. Actually, if I just stop there for a second and take a step back, we did all this through uh, what was called the Biova at the time at Aldley Park. So as AstraZeneca exited Aldley Park, we set up this sort of life sciences incubator. So we started off hot desking, then moved to a small office. Then the lab, we use an open access lab, so we hide a bench in an open access lab, and now that, that each of those allowed us to bring on a new offering with a relatively small investment. We're entirely a self-funded company until the 
purchase of this building, which we took a, a mortgage for. So, so still self-funded, we leave a lot of money in the company and use that to drive growth. So yeah, then we started a lab offering, which was really around some profiling of compounds with an understanding absorption potential, and then a lot around preclinical formulation screening. We, have, we had a number of clients that came to us in a, a little bit of a panic. They'd sort of booked in their GLP tox studies, all the animals were committed. So they were committed to the spend and suddenly realized they weren't going to get enough exposure. Needed to find a formulation that was tolerated for a month so you can have really high excipient levels, but also gain good exposure. And we had a lot, well, particularly Marcel had a lot of experience in that area from his AstraZeneca days. So we started the lab there. And then we, ever since then, we've just been expanding the lab offering. So that's something that's grown. We started then moving into, that was preclinical formulations. Started moving into early clinical formulations and testing. So we do a lot, a lot of bio-relevant dissolution testing in that early phase. So we bought dissolution kits, bought HPLCs, all that stuff. So much, much bigger investments than initial investment. And then as we've gone through now, as we've moved to our new building, we've, we've started, we've scaled up now so that we can do effectively development for launch. The technical bits, we don't do any GMP manufacture at the moment. We just, we design, analytical, design drug product, a process for manufacture and analytical methods if required. And, and then we, we would help the client transfer those to a GMP manufacturer. So we're really experts in design of both product and, and, and process and then take them somewhere else for someone to make those. It's a really fantastic story. It's one that I've seen elsewhere in the UK. I know you're based in uh, in the Northwest towards Manchester. I have to ask the question, you know, you guys were, and please say this in the, in the most respectful way, a bunch of scientists that are now running, I would class as a really successful business, especially as it's been self-funded what what were some of the hardest lessons as you have scaled up the business and you've employed more people and it's incredible to hear that you've self-funded it and you've invested in equipment and in facilities you know, very different from your days at AstraZeneca <laughs> so how have you found that I suppose transition from being part of something bigger where you have resource at your fingertips it's not coming out of your pocket to what you guys do now and I'm guessing it's just the way things are now but I'm sure there was a time where you're like, this is this is not <laughs> this is different to what I'm used to. Yeah. So I think you know, in terms of that that we talked about, you know, the emotional side or the less analytical side, emotionally I think it's been relatively easy. Uh, because we're making our own decisions and in charge of our own destiny, I think all three of us, you know, find that less stressful because it's if we fail it's on us and not on anybody else. So we find that liberating. The way I describe it to people, I think it's a little bit like you get on the roller coaster at the bottom and it's pulled you up that really steep hill and you, you know you're going to fly down the bottom. You sort of feel anxious, but, but you've got to know I'm going to enjoy that anxiety as I shoot down the other side. I'm going to enjoy it. So whenever you f- feel like, well, you know, we, grow, we go quickly and you get very busy for a while and then you need to bring in a, another layer of management to help you, you've got to remember, oh, if you keep coming, telling yourself, this is like the good, anxi- the good anxiety going up the roller coaster, then I think that makes it uh, helpful. And then the, I think the other thing is a scientific mindset helps. So we try and treat everything as an experiment. We don't really com- commit massive amounts of money. Money. So if I, if I said big farmer, we'd probably say, well, actually, we need to get into a certain area. You get this big budget. You'd absolutely put all your resource behind it, and, and then you'd establish it, and then you start to do projects. Whereas probably in a small company, you think, well, this is an area that could be useful. How, how little money can I can I spend to prove it? You do it a bit on a shoe skin, shoe, uh, shoe string, and then it, it looks successful, and then you scale it from that perspective. And by doing it by that, you know, if, if you fail, it's not it's not so bad. You just put it down as an experiment. I've committed that money. See if it's an experiment. As long as it's not going to, that amount of money isn't going to 
kill the business and it's a, it's just an experiment it's, it's either you've got an upside or a downside and, and then we move forward so i think that we've had some good ad you know financial advice you know sort of business type advisors uh, but basically doing stuff as an experiment and understanding what the risk to the business is of that experiment versus what the upside is really helps with decision making i think that's fascinating i've just been jotting some notes down because i think that's a it's such a unique perspective on bringing your I suppose innate skill set around being scientists and and actually using that to your advantage when it comes to you know running pilots and um, experiments to see see what works, which is fantastic. And it goes without saying, I understand you're about thirty staff uh, now and growing year on year. So congratulations on the success. And um, we've got a few minutes left, and I just wanted to ask a couple of final questions. One is, you know, if I look across the market and I've interviewed people on this podcast that are part of say bigger CRO, CDMO type businesses that say they can do it all and all the services that you guys offer, you know, they'll say they can do that too. How do you guys then differentiate when you guys are pitching against the bigger players? What's your, not much your pitch, I don't mean that in a asking you to, to kind of divulge your elevator pitch, but just understanding how, you, how a business like yours differentiates when you're up against you know, companies that have huge resources, a bigger global presence, you know, all, all that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good question and uh, one that I maybe don't have the perfect answer to at the moment. It's one thing we're talking about now, actually, because we're going, so up until recently, we, we really were like a little speck, the sort of big international companies with massive marketing departments. We were clearly weren't competing with them. Now that we're getting bigger, we're looking more and more like, like them from the outside, I think, which is a, a double-edged sword because obviously... We've got a bigger profile, more people know about us, but then, you know, we look more similar to them than we used to do in the past. And I think as we grow, that's one of our challenges to keep this integrated thinking, to keep this ability to really understand the client's needs and, and deliver what they want, not, you know, really understand what they need, actually. They might come to us what they, what they think they want, and what, what we're still trying to do is decide what they need or try and understand, work with them to understand what they really need and then deliver them that. So... Yeah. I think that's where we're trying to, uh, without maybe being sort of disingenuous or yeah, yeah, of course, criticizing anybody else. I think what we would still say, besides our unique mix of the sciences that we think is adding value, I think in a behavioral sense, we're really trying to understand what the client needs and deliver that for them rather than just saying, can we do this piece of work that someone's asked us for and then doing it. Well, yeah, that's probably where we're, we're, we're trying to position ourselves. Good for you. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing. I've seen it for many years in smaller businesses that grow and you aspire to look like and sound like these big companies and it gets to a point where you can end up not, you know, become you know, indifferentiated against them. So uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge. It is, you know, we're you know, studying at the, at the start of 2023, looking at the year ahead, um, some challenges for biotech in terms of capital and you know inflationary pressures in you know interest rates it's an interesting macro environment as you look ahead for the next 18 months couple of years what it talk us through some of the trends that you see on the horizon both from a general industry perspective and you know are we going to see you know more outsourcing and in that type of thing but also just i suppose from a services capability perspective you guys have got a really interesting niche and uh, I suppose a, a selection of services. So interested to hear which of those is going to be potentially well suited for for the next couple of years. Yeah. So I think the, the continuing sort of growth of the sort of CRO and and, and uh, contracted out with 
you know, small companies and with, with large farm, right? I think that's still here. So I think that that's not a worry, I guess. We talk about funding of biotechs, that is, uh, I think, not not as strong as it used to be. From Cedar's perspective, I think we're still small enough and uh, still agile enough that we hope we can compete and win business. We're still in that growth phase. So for us, I think keeping agile, keeping that real focus on sort of delighting the customer, uh, we're not so w- worried about the overall economic situation. Mm. Not to say that, you know, it'd be obviously be better if it was stronger, but it's uh, not something... It's not something that's keeping us awake, awake at night at the moment, at least in terms of the, the sort of core business. Yeah, and then I think, I mean, you see a lot of talk about integration, and, I, and I'm seeing more people now going, probably more, if I look back two years, I saw a lot of talk about integration, sort of end-to-end delivery of you know, coming out of discovery, going right through the clinic, and then finding some compounds, then scaling them up and getting to the clinic, that end-to-end integration. A couple of years ago, maybe that sounded like words and maybe there was a, f- a few people purchasing those services where it's always valuable. It does seem that that's getting more and more traction with potential clients, that service that they prefer, this sort of one-stop shop. I think that's something to think about. And, you know, probably as a company, because we're sat in between a couple of those different places, we, we could be a really nice cog for integrating all that. And that's something we probably need to work through as we grow and understand where, maybe where we are in five years' time. What, are we going to create some sort of end-to-end uh, delivery model where this sort of clinical pharmacology, biopharmaceutics product development bit is that, that cog that really drives value in the middle? And that's that's for us, I think, uh, you know, certainly what I'm thinking at the moment. Yeah, that's great. And uh, Paul, it's been genuinely lovely. I'm glad to finally get you on the podcast. I, I'm, I'm really fascinated to hear your story personally but also the success and continued growth of Seda Pharmaceuticals it sounds like you guys are doing something right so it's good to see how you've been able to do that but some of the challenges along the way so um yeah it goes without saying but thank thank you for being a guest on Molecule to Market we've uh, I've really enjoyed today's conversation with you brilliant thank, thanks for having me as well it's been good fun hi again thanks for tuning in to today's show really hope you enjoyed the episode for more shows have a look on spotify apple or amazon wherever you like to listen and do make sure that you subscribe so the next episode comes direct to your device automatically and please get in touch via our website at molecule to market pod or via linkedin or twitter we love to hear from you so if you have a guest that you want to suggest or someone in your organization that you think would make a great guest on molecules market then please let us know we'll see you very soon you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital, and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile, and generate leads in life sciences.